Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 164, The Terminator. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always a huge hi, welcome and welcome back to Verbal Diorama, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener or whether you're an irregular returning listener, thank you for being here, thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And basically, no matter how you got here, no matter how you found this podcast, whether you indeed came back from the future to find this podcast, I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of The Terminator. This is one of the seminal science fiction films of the 80s. So this is going to be a really packed, really fun and really big episode. So I'm really excited to do this. But before I jump into that, I just want to say, as always, a huge thank you to everyone who listened to the most recent previous episodes of this podcast. So I recently did episodes that were kind of similar to each other, I guess. Mars Attacks and District 9. They're very different tonally, but actually quite similar alien invasion movies because the human response in both of those movies was, I think, actually probably quite accurate. Because, you know, humans can be dumbasses, as seen in Mars Attacks, but also humans can be really cruel, as seen in District 9. And neither of them had anything to do with the Terminator, so it kind of segueing off completely yet again. Not all episodes that follow have something to do with the previous episode. I always like to find a little link if I can, but going from District 9 to the Terminator, I mean, there's not much of a link there, to be honest. But... The Terminator is a movie that I was frightened of the first time I saw it. And then when you realise it's essentially a sci-fi slasher horror movie, it's not difficult to comprehend that actually this is quite scary. You've got a young woman being pursued by a persistent killer. 
And its slasher roots are well documented too. This is the movie that paved the way for Arnold Schwarzenegger to become a megastar, for James Cameron to become one of the biggest directors of all time, and for the late great Bill Paxton to start his Killed by a Terminator, an Alien and a Predator trilogy. So there is that as well, R.I.P. Bill Paxton. But let's just jump straight in. Let's go back to 1984 for the trailer for The Terminator. In the 21st century, a weapon will be invented like no other. This weapon will be powerful, versatile, and indestructible. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It will feel no pity, no remorse, no pain, no fear. It will have only one purpose to return to the present and prevent the future. This weapon will be called the Terminator. You're dead, honey. What day is it? The date? 12th, May, Thursday. What year? Assigned to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. Why does it want me? Why me? Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Your future is in its hands. In 2029, the machines are fighting a war with the humanity that built it. To ensure their success, they send a cyborg Terminator back to 1984 to kill Sarah Connor, the mother of the future leader of the Resistance, before her son is conceived. To save his mother, John Connor sends back one of his warriors, Kyle Reese, to protect her. But how can you stop a relentless, unstoppable killing machine? Let's run through the cast. We have Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator, Michael Bean as Kyle Reese, Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor, Paul Winfield as Ed Traxler, Lance Henriksen as Vukovic, Bess Motta as Ginger, Rick Rossovich as Matt, and Earl Bone as Dr. Silberman. Also featured in small cameos, Dick Miller, the wonderful Dick Miller, as the gun shop clerk, and Bill Paxton, of course, as one of the punks killed by the Terminator. The Terminator was written by James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd, and it was directed by James Cameron. There is an acknowledgement credit in VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray copies of this movie to Harlan Ellison. These are for his short story, Soldier, but I'm going to come back to Harlan Ellison a little bit later on in this podcast. So before Gremlins, Joe Dante's second feature as a director was the Jaws ripoff Piranha in 1978. In fact, according to Jaws director Steven Spielberg, Piranha was the best of the Jaws ripoffs. 
And Piranha did very well, making $16 million on an under $1 million budget. And naturally, when a movie like Piranha does well, a sequel is inevitable. And the sequel to Piranha, I do have a point here, I promise, is Piranha 2 The Spawning, the directorial debut of one James Cameron. This is not the only movie of 1978 that I'm going to be mentioning here either. Cameron's involvement with Piranha 2 is slightly debated. Cameron himself was a replacement for another director who left due to creative differences with producer Ovidio Asinaitis. There were many issues on Piranha 2 in the post-production. Cameron reportedly got shut out of the editing suite, so... Whether he was actually the director is yet to be seen. However, he is the director credited for that movie. And while in Rome for Piranha 2, James Cameron became ill and he had a dream about a chrome skeleton emerging from a fire. This dream, as well as Cameron's respect for John Carpenter's horror classic Halloween, which also came out in 1978, I told you I'd come back to 1978, they became the inspiration for Cameron's own slasher horror much to the chagrin of his agent, who didn't like the concept at all and suggested that he work on something else. Cameron would then go on to fire his agent. He wrote a draft for a movie that he called The Terminator, based in part on the science fiction movies and books he grew up with and a childhood during the Cuban Missile Crisis and what the impending apocalypse could look like and be born from. He enlisted the help of his writer friend Bill Wisher, to turn his draft into a proper script that he could try to sell. Meanwhile, Gail Ann Hurd had worked her way through New World Pictures, finally becoming Roger Corman's executive assistant and then leaving to form her own production company, Pacific Western Productions, in 1982. She showed interest in the Terminator script and Cameron sold her the rights for $1 for her to produce the movie as long as he could direct it. Heard suggested edits to the script but didn't actually do the writing herself. Nevertheless, James Cameron gave her a co-writing credit with Bill Wisher credited for additional dialogue for his role in expanding the characters of Sarah Connor and the police department scene. James Cameron's original script would involve not one Terminator but two. The first Terminator would be defeated midway through the movie so the future would then send the ultimate Terminator which our heroes would also blow up, but it would then start to put itself back together again and be as new. This second idea for a Terminator would ultimately become the T-1000 in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, but more on that in a future episode, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. With a story containing just one unstoppable Terminator, together Cameron and Heard shopped the project around before landing at Orion Pictures, who agreed to distribute the movie if they could get the financial backing elsewhere. And so to get this backing, James Cameron enlisted his friend Lance Henriksen to appear in a meeting with John Daly of Hemdale Film Corporation, dressed as and acting as the Terminator, complete with leather jacket, fake cuts, kicking open the door before James Cameron relieved him of his termination duties. And then James Cameron could pitch his script to Daly. John Daly was so impressed with Cameron's passion, reviewed the sketches, liked the script and agreed to finance the sci-fi slasher horror The Terminator for an initial budget of $4 million. And it's important to highlight just how low budget The Terminator actually was. In fact, it was so low budget that most of the filming took place in Los Angeles, guerrilla style with no permits and the constant fear that police might arrest those taking part. 
as a comparison, other movies in 1984 with considerably bigger budgets include Ghostbusters, that had a $30 million budget, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that had a $28 million budget, even Gremlins was an $11 million budget. It's worth adding that they all did make a hell of a lot more than The Terminator did at the US box office. But even the previous episode, 160, Romancing the Stone, was made for more money than The Terminator was. That was made for $10 million, would you believe? Anyway, back to The Terminator, because they needed to find actors to fill the three main roles. For the future mother of the leader of the Resistance, Sarah Connor, arguably also becoming one of the most important and influential women in cinema, she was initially described as 19, small and delicate features, and pretty in a flawed, accessible way. Big names like Rosanna Arquette and Leah Thompson would audition, and Jennifer Jason Leigh was considered, but Cameron chose Linda Hamilton, who just finished filming Children of the Corn, only her second film role at the time. The casting of Kyle Reese, though, was causing a bit of an issue. Orion co-founder Mike Medavoy had met a young up-and-coming actor called Arnold Schwarzenegger and Orion wanted someone whose popularity was rising in the US to play Kyle Reese. Orion were super keen on Schwarzenegger, but Cameron really wasn't, mostly because he was concerned that if he hired Schwarzenegger as Reese, someone even more famous would need to be the Terminator. Orion would suggest Sylvester Stallone and Mel Gibson, but both were uninterested. Even O.J. Simpson was suggested, but Cameron didn't think he would be a convincing enough killer. Fast forward a few years and you might change your mind, James. Cameron agreed to meet with Schwarzenegger, but still in the back of his mind, he was convinced this guy wasn't Kyle Reese. For his part, Schwarzenegger, whose first big Hollywood film, Conan the Barbarian, had made him a household name the year prior, would chat with Cameron, but not about the Kyle Reese role, but about the Terminator. And he bring up ideas for how the character would move and talk. He'd base his ideas on Yul Brynner's role as an android in the film Westworld. And in one of the most iconic casting switcheroos in history, James Cameron, after his meeting with Schwarzenegger, went back to John Daly and told him that Schwarzenegger was simply not Kyle Reese, but that he thought they'd found their Terminator. And they had indeed found their Terminator. James Cameron would say about the casting, quote, Casting Arnold Schwarzenegger as our Terminator shouldn't have worked. The guy is supposed to be an infiltration unit, and there's no way you wouldn't spot a Terminator in a crowd instantly if they all looked like Arnold. It made no sense whatsoever. But the beauty of movies is that they don't have to be logical. They just have to have plausibility. If there's a visceral, cinematic thing happening that the audience likes, they don't care if it goes against what's likely. And the idea to have a fully fleshed out, pun intended, cyborg killing machine, a flesh-covered endoskeleton that was unstoppable, felt fresher than having a guy in a robot suit. The metal slasher from his dream would still exist, but look like Arnold Schwarzenegger most of the time. Schwarzenegger was initially hesitant to take the role, but ultimately thought the idea of playing a cyborg was so radically different to Conan, it might look good on his CV or resume if you're American. And also, this was a low-budget sci-fi horror and probably wouldn't become a huge billion-dollar franchise or anything, so he felt it was low-profile enough to not potentially damage his fledgling Hollywood career if it all went south. And to be honest, he wasn't the only one who thought The Terminator wouldn't be a hit. But more on that a bit later as well. The production still needed its Kyle Reese, though. 
And out of several actors under consideration, including Christopher Reeve, Matt Dillon, Kurt Russell, Treat Williams and Tommy Lee Jones, Cameron chose Michael Bean. Like Schwarzenegger, Bean was apprehensive about the project, but met with Cameron and changed his mind. Gail Unheard would go on to state that all the other actors played up Reese's toughness, whereas Bean seemed to focus on the vulnerability and human connection between Kyle and Sarah, who had very little time in the movie to find that connection and make it believable. Cameron also managed to find a small part for his friend Lance Henriksen, the man who actually helped to get the project made in the first place. When filming was due to start on The Terminator in early 1983, there was an immediate issue though. Arnold Schwarzenegger was immediately unavailable due to contractual obligations to film Conan the Destroyer. The production was halted for nine months, but James Cameron put that time to good use, co-writing Rambo First Blood Part 2, to which he was contracted, and at the same time, Brandywine Productions development executive Larry Wilson began looking for a scriptwriter for the sequel to Alien, then called Alien 2, and he came across a script for an in-development science fiction film called The Terminator. It was James Cameron's collaborative scriptwriting efforts alongside Sylvester Stallone on Rambo First Blood Part 2, which convinced Larry Wilson to show the script for The Terminator to Brandywine executives David Geiler, Walter Hill and Gordon Carroll. James Cameron wrote a 42-page treatment for Alien 2 in just three days, outlining Geiler and Hill's suggestions of Ripley and Soldiers. The project stalled after Fox executives had a mixed reaction to the treatment. In July 1984, Fox had a new studio head, Lawrence Gordon, and with Fox struggling to develop new projects, he decided to look at sequels to Fox's existing properties, came across the Alien 2 treatment by James Cameron, and because the Terminator production had been delayed, James Cameron would continue to use this delay to expand his treatment for Alien 2, doubling it in length, and basically... The story goes, they loved the Alien 2 treatment. James Cameron then said, look, if you want my stuff, I want to direct it. And the rest of that story is told in episode 114 of this podcast on Aliens. But back to The Terminator, which would eventually start filming in March 1984 in Los Angeles, with primarily night shoots, carefully selected to have bright streetlights, and filming had to be quick and efficient due to the low budget it would end up shooting over 45 days. Tet Noir, the name of the nightclub, was also the theme of this shoot. Schwarzenegger wouldn't really speak to either Linda Hamilton or Michael Bean during filming because he didn't want to strike up a friendship with them. He wanted to keep things fairly method. Linda Hamilton, though, would suffer an ankle injury just before filming started, which meant her running scenes, and let's be honest, she's our final girl, she runs a lot, they had to be moved to the end of filming. But even then, her ankle had to be strapped up and she was still in quite some pain during those scenes. Speaking of pain, Arnold Schwarzenegger was sprayed with acid to make his jacket smoke, which was an incredibly uncomfortable experience too. Being such a practical movie, pretty much everything you see on screen was an on-set thing. As I mentioned, James Cameron routinely employed guerrilla-style filmmaking to get around paying for filming permits. One reshoot in particular, the end scene where Sarah Connor drives off into the distance was stopped by police. They ultimately allowed the filming to go ahead when James Cameron and Gail Heard assured them that they were actually filming a student film. Obviously they weren't. And as I mentioned, I was terrified of this movie the first time I saw it. So much so that I didn't watch it again for a very long time. 
And I've been dipping my toes into more horror recently. Anyone who follows me on social media will probably know that I'm famously not a horror person whatsoever. I watched John Carpenter's Halloween quite recently, actually, and I really liked it. And I can absolutely see the parallels between Halloween and Terminator. But like most of those classic horrors, the thing I found I loved the most about the Terminator was, and again, this is going to be no surprise to anyone who listens to this podcast, the special effects. And for that, we thank Stan Winston Studio and Gene Warren of Fantasy 2. James Cameron sent his sketches and the script to Stan Winston and originally wanted Winston for the prosthetic makeup, showing the chrome endoskeleton underneath the flesh exterior of Arnold Schwarzenegger. But Winston was adamant they could do the animatronic puppets in camera and it would look great. Bear in mind this was a time of visual effects really pushing the boundaries in Hollywood, from Blade Runner to The Thing and American Werewolf in London. Practical visual effects were seen as constantly evolving, becoming more realistic and incredible. Stan Winston Studio wanted to be the best in the business. And let's be honest, they are the best in the business. And it's no news to regular listeners of this podcast because you know I love practical effects. You know I love stop motion. So let's talk about the effects for the Terminator. From Stan Winston, they had a special rubber endoskeleton used for the crushing scene. There were actually several endoskeletons. There was an explodable one, a crushable one, the hero full figure and a torso head and arms puppet that was worn on the shoulders of puppeteer Shane Mayen. And these were all designed by Stan Winston Studio to create the famous Terminator head puppet that removes an eye to reveal a glowing red light. A team of seven artists worked on the puppet over the course of six months. It was initially sculpted in clay and then plaster and reinforced with steel bracing. After painting and sanding these components, chrome plating was applied. Shane Mayen would quote that the Terminator was eight years of concentrated film school in one five-month period because they learned so much just from sculpting that one animatronic puppet. Gene Warren Jr. headed Fantasy 2 and they were responsible for the quarter-scale miniature robot skeleton used for the stop-motion shots as well as the sequences set in 2029. James Cameron's original plan was to use stop-motion for all of the special effects shots, but Stan Winston convinced him to use animatronic puppets. Doug Bezik was the head of the team at Fantasy 2 who constructed the stop-motion T-800 puppet, which had movable joints that could lock into place, but was still simple enough to reposition on every new frame. To create the puppet, Bezik had to meticulously replicate Stan Winston's full-size T-800 endoskeleton, but on a scale that was just one-third the size. The tiny T-800 components, made up of more than 100 distinct parts, were largely machined from aluminium, and some of the smaller elements required manual carving and sculpting. The endoskeleton feet needed more strength to support the body, so steel was used. And after each individual T-800 component had been created, it took Bezik and his colleagues about two weeks to put the puppet together. Due to delays with the T-800 design from Stan Winston's crew, the puppet's completion was six weeks later than expected. As a result of the delay, the stop-motion animation crew had even more pressure to finish certain T-800 scenes before James Cameron even began filming. This was due to Cameron's intention to film the finale using rear screen projection technology. Fancy 2's Peter Kleinau and his team started animating the puppet that Bezik made. It was quite difficult for Peter Kleinau to match the film's 24 frames per second speed. 
One thing that went in his favour was the T-800's limp, which was modelled by Arnold Schwarzenegger's gait. Making the T-800 animated puppet seem more convincing to viewers required meticulous attention to detail. Kleinau also had a trick up his sleeve when it came to adding artificial motion blur to the endoskeleton puppet's quicker movements. He simply placed a pane of glass between the camera and the puppet and smeared the glass slightly with Vaseline. James Cameron recorded background materials such as the burning tanker wreckage. Peter Kleinau and his crew used back production to display the wreckage footage one frame at a time behind the endoskeleton puppet using the same technology that James Cameron employed in his filming. The largest obstacle was Kyle Reese's encounter with the Terminator on the elevated catwalk. Cameron shot a scene with Michael Bean fighting nothing and then passed that footage to Kleinau who had to give the impression that Bean was standing on the raised walk while the puppet was in the foreground, which meant that the walk's handrail needed to be in front of the Terminator. In order to create the illusion that Kyle Reese and the Terminator were engaged in joint combat, Kleinow and his team had the challenge of replicating a section of the raised walk, but in exact size miniature, and to get the shot lined up properly. And I really do believe that these effects still hold up today. And I guess there is some criticism out there, especially when viewing this movie with a modern lens that maybe scenes with the animatronic puppet haven't held up. But I would say that a good 90% of the stop motion scenes with the endoskeleton have held up. Because if you watch this movie and you feel grossed out by the fact that he's basically plucking his own eye out, as I do, I have to be honest, then this movie is doing what it was supposed to do. If you're scared by a Terminator endoskeleton walking towards you and it's stop motion and you're still scared, then this movie is doing what it's supposed to do. And obviously there were so many excellent practical effects in this movie. There was some excellent real puppeteering going on with that genuine metal puppet. It was completely made of metal and it was incredibly heavy as well. Basically all of the hard work that went into this movie on such a tiny budget as well, let's not forget, is... The rewards are so worthwhile because the images of this movie are still so iconic. Speaking of icons, Arnold Schwarzenegger has, over his vast career, made a habit of telling people, I'll be back. But that iconic line almost wasn't going to be that. Schwarzenegger had problems saying, I'll. And so he asked James Cameron to change the line to, I will be back. But Cameron refused. Good job he did too, as I'll Be Back was ranked the 37th greatest line in movie history by the American Film Institute. The Institute also ranked the Terminator 42nd on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills, a list of America's most heart-pounding films. The character of the Terminator was also selected as the 22nd greatest movie villain on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. And if you do have this movie on VHS, you might want to get it out of the attic. Because recently reported on the Film Stories site back in February of this year, a very good condition copy of The Terminator on VHS recently sold online for $32,500. I can tell you though, they're not getting their hands on my ex-rental VHS copy of The Mummy because that's priceless. Another thing that's priceless and that I will never get rid of is the obligatory Keanu reference of this podcast and of this episode. And what that is, is that is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves 
And my plan was always to try and link the Terminator to the Matrix because machines, it makes sense. And then I found out that there's actually a fan theory online that proposes that there's a connection between the Matrix and the Terminator. So bear with me while I go through this theory. So this theory relies on the belief that there are all kinds of different realities where different things can end up happening. But what it says is in order for the Matrix and the Terminator to exist in the same universe, the Terminator successfully kills Sarah Connor in The Terminator before she's able to give birth to John, the future human leader of the Resistance, which obviously changes the Terminator exponentially. So because the Terminator ended up doing his job really well, Skynet wins the war against the humans. And obviously in The Matrix, humans are basically trying everything they can to fight back against the machines. And Morpheus mentions that the machines eventually adapt and start to run on solar power. In turn, mankind decides to scorch the sky to try and take the energy source. Because there is no John Connor, there is no one to stop the machines. And because humans blot out the sun, the humans then become prisoners of war, they're locked up. And because John isn't there to defeat the machines, you get this whole humans are energy plot that is hatched and carried out through the Matrix movies. Now, this is just a random fan theory. But obviously, you then, at some point in the near future, in this shared universe, you end up with Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, as essentially the saviour of humanity. So you don't get John Connor, but you do get Neo. And honestly, if that's not a great obligatory Keanu reference, then I don't know what is. I'm happy with that. Are you happy with that? <laughs> I think that's one of the best ones. And yes, it's just a silly fan theory, but I guess it could make sense. If the machines take over, and if we don't have a leader of the human resistance, then maybe that's what will happen. Who knows? We'll have to wait until 2029, I guess. So the music for The Terminator was composed and performed on a synthesizer. Of course it was. This was the early 80s by Brad Fiedel. Fiedel said that his score reflected a mechanical man and his heartbeat. Almost all the music in the film was performed live and this score would be slightly upgraded for the sequel. Again, composed by Brad Fiedel, but more on that in the future. Not 2029, but the very near future. When it came to the marketing of The Terminator, this was a movie that Orion had no faith in whatsoever. They thought that it would garner a negative critical reaction. They didn't think it would do very well at the box office. They didn't even want to do press screenings. And this is notorious for when a studio has zero faith in a movie, they will refuse to do a press screening. They did hold one eventually, but only because the actor's agents insisted upon it. And the reason for this lack of faith was presumably due to the fact that during the post-production process, James Cameron and John Daly's relationship deteriorated. Daly and Orion executive Mike Medavoy, the one who suggested Arnold Schwarzenegger to Cameron, allegedly wanted the movie to end with the tanker explosion. So they didn't want the robot factory climax. They didn't want the epilogue. John Daly would ultimately concede. And this original ending that we have contributed to the movie's unexpected popularity. Orion Pictures, on the other hand, they wanted to be known for producing quote-unquote high-caliber films such as Amadeus and Platoon and they basically saw The Terminator as little more than a low-budget sci-fi vehicle to earn some quick cash. 
In Cameron's opinion, the promotional material for the movie was insufficient. Three weeks after the movie's debut, Mike Medavoy continued to disregard Cameron's request to expand the movie's advertising campaign. By the time the studio learned of the positive word of mouth from critics, Hemdale and John Daly had raised enough money to beef up the ad campaign without Orion's assistance. But to be honest, word of mouth was the best thing for The Terminator. People went to see this movie. Hell of a lot of women went to see this movie too, which is interesting because it's not the sort of movie that generally was marketed towards a female audience. And yet, when this movie was released on the 26th of October 1984, it hit number one in the box office in its first week. It stayed there for a second week as well. The Terminator was indeed resonating with audiences and it would make almost its entire budget back in its first week of release. In its third week, it dropped to second, but it was returned to number one in its sixth week and go on to stay in the top 10 for eight weeks. Movies at the same time included, interestingly, A Nightmare on Elm Street, a sleeper hit that literally crept up the box office. And rather unsurprisingly, you'll know that The Terminator made a lot of money. Just the mere fact that I said it made its almost $6.5 million budget back in its first week is a bit of a hefty clue. But for a movie that was supposed to flop, it did astonishingly well, making $38.4 million in the US and $40 million worldwide for a total gross of $78.3 million. At the time, critics were mixed. They had praise for its performances, visual effects and story and for the pitch-perfect casting of Schwarzenegger, but others criticised it for its violence and gore and stunted dialogue. Retrospective reviews are almost universal praise, though, with the Terminator seen as one of the defining science fiction movies of the 1980s for its establishing of both Cameron and Schwarzenegger as titans of cinema going forward, and especially considering its small budget. It currently sits at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Despite claiming that he loved the movie, he was blown away by it, author Harlan Ellison threatened legal action because he thought the screenplay was based on a short story, an episode of The Outer Limits that he had written called Soldier. In a 1986 out-of-court settlement, Orion provided Ellison with an undisclosed sum of money as well as an acknowledgement credit in later prints of the movie. This was a decision James Cameron did not agree with, but he had no choice because he would be liable to pay the damages should Ellison sue Orion and win the lawsuit in court. James Cameron was also subject to a gag order on the decision, but would eventually come clean in an interview in 2009. When it came to awards, obviously, it didn't win any Oscars or any Golden Globes or anything like that, but it did win three Saturn Awards for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Makeup and Best Writing. I kind of have to talk about sequels. Five sequels followed The Terminator, Terminator 2 Judgment Day 1991, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines in 2003, Terminator Salvation in 2009, Terminator Genesis in 2015 and Terminator Dark Fate in 2019, most of which weren't very good. I don't want to focus on sequels too much, only to say that according to James Cameron, the Terminator franchise ended with Judgment Day. This was despite him coming back to write Dark Fate, which I actually think is okay and definitely the most enjoyable out of all the sequels bar Judgment Day, but put a pin in Judgment Day because we are going to be coming back to that one soon. 
And while you might think that James Cameron reaped the financial benefits of all of these Terminator movies, unfortunately he didn't. Because if you'll remember at the start, he sold the rights to Gail Ann Hurd, and so the rights to Terminator bounced around several studios in the 2000s and 2010s before reverting back to him in 2019. He would make no money from Rise of the Machines, Salvation or Genesis. He would call this period the costs of a Hollywood education. Right, let's move on to social media thoughts. What do people on the internet, on Patreon, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, think of The Terminator? Well, let's start with the patrons and let's start with, you know his name, perennial commenter Andy. And Andy says, The Terminator cemented the action star bona fides for Arnold Schwarzenegger in a way that his previous films couldn't. Giving him minimal dialogue and the line that would be etched on his tombstone, I'll be back, and just letting him look like an absolute juggernaut gives this film its heart and soul, its metallic heart and its robotic, um, well, never mind. This is also the film that kickstarts the career of James Cameron, and as I want to be nice, I won't say anything about any of his works past the sequel to this movie. You like aliens though, right Andy? And true lies, they're probably the best. <laughs> they're probably the best of James Cameron's movies going forward. We also have a patron comment from Nicholas who says, Personally, I think it's better than T2. More dark and gritty, you really feel the terrifying threat that the T-101 will not stop until it has completed its mission. The effects still hold up decades later, especially Stan Winston's work. A masterpiece. And another patron comment from Derek, who says, While T2 may outshine the original, this movie is a treasure. Living at the intersection of sci-fi and horror, Arnold shines as a ruthless machine. And just to mention, Derek obviously does have his own podcast too. It is called The Midnight Myth. He hosts it with his wife, Laurel. And together, they basically talk about pop culture from a lens of philosophy, history, mythology, basically how those subjects all appear in our popular culture. And it's a really fascinating podcast and it's a must listen. I will put some information in the show notes for The Midnight Myth. Another patron comment from Ian, who says, oh God, why do people make me sing? <laughs> well, it's not really singing, but... <clears throat> okay, here we go. I think that was right. I think that was what you meant me to do. He also put in parentheses, have fun, M, smiley face. Thanks. Um, I hope I got that right. Great soundtrack to go with a great film. Not as good as T2, but what is? And the final patron comment comes from Zoe, who said, When Zoe first saw it, he thought it was a brilliant spin on the horror genre. An unstoppable killer. Unstoppable not because it's supernatural, but because it was a machine. And I'm also going to take the opportunity to highlight Zoe's podcast, Backlook Cinema, which he hosts with his son, Zach. And it's basically a father and son, the father introducing his son to all of the amazing nostalgic movies that we all grew up with. So it is a very fun podcast and I will put some information in the show notes for Backlook Cinema as well. Right, we're going to move over to Twitter and we're going to start with at Harry Met Movies, who said, if you haven't seen the stuff of Arnold talking about how the guy playing the Terminator 
has to act like a machine, it's well worth seeking out. And when you watch the film, you can see why he became the star of the movie, despite being the villain. At Director Neil says, When this came out, I didn't see it because I thought it was just another action film. The poster did not scream post-apocalyptic action time travel sci-fi with a chrome red-eye skeleton robot complete with romance time loop and stop-motion animation. At Vincent Asher said, One of the few films that defines cinema and birthed a franchise, this movie cemented Schwarzenegger as an action star. I can watch this movie whenever it's on TV or on streaming. The only better movie is the sequel T2. At D.W. Lundberg said, My favourite of the franchise. A slasher movie under the guise of a sci-fi time trial actioner and I love it. One of the strongest, hey I am a filmmaker you'll be chatting about for as long as you chat about movies, declarations I have ever seen. At EILF Movies said, One of the best slasher flicks of all time. Tightly written for a time-travelling robot versus human story. Landmark special effects, great acting, infinitely quotable. I've also seen it hundreds of times on VHS as a kid. At Needed Roads said, I had a nightmare as a child where I was being chased by King Kong and I crushed him to death in a machine press just like the end of Terminator. Yes, the physics don't work, but it was also a child's vivid dream. At Mr London underscore NCB said, Discovered this mid-80s on Moviedrome one Sunday night. Alex Cox was responsible for introducing me to so many wonders of cinema and I'm fortunate that I got to watch Terminator without any spoilers in the pre-internet days. A classic that's much imitated but rarely bettered. At At Pedestrian said, It's a landmark action film. As a kid, I saw a lot of parodies of it, but as an adult, the pacing, the intensity, even the soundtrack, it's genuinely chilling. Four star. At Dissect That Film said, It's an iconic sci-fi film with great effects, great performances, and one of the greatest themes in cinematic history. That theme that I just butchered then. <laughs> At Avatar Pod said, An absolute classic of science fiction. The best use of time travel in cinema as well, which is always a tough concept to get right. At Robopulp said, You could write a book on the cultural significance of this movie alone, but I'll just state that it's an impressive film debut, proof of what can be accomplished with ingenuity and vision, and it's Cameron's most efficient film on a budget standpoint. At Forced to be Social said, In my opinion, number two is better than number one and the others were just cash grabs. At Connections Cult said, Never heard of it. At Ben Berwick GB said, The first film was a pulsating tense ride that merged the storytelling and action scenes to keep the movie rolling at breakneck speed. At TIAAD Media said, Similar to Alien, Terminator is often overlooked in favour of his more popular sequel with greater mass appeal. It is a strong movie that has aged remarkably well both in story and special effects and is responsible for launching a powerhouse of a film franchise. At MCU On Repeat said, My favourite Terminator film. I feel that this movie just has mad slasher vibes and is incredible in its pacing and horror. I never get bored of it. Moving over to Instagram, just the one comment on Instagram this time. At Lindahl underscore A said, It's a B-movie that more or less created Arnold Schwarzenegger's fame. Linda was awesome in it and the ending was good for its time. No comments over on Facebook, but a huge amount of comments for The Terminator, which actually is kind of expected because this is a favourite of a lot of people. And 
I'm really pleased that I finally got past my fear and covered the Terminator because it's been such an amazing, incredible experience to watch this movie again and just to hear so many brilliant comments about this movie too. So as always, huge thank you to the patrons, to everyone on Twitter and Instagram, but not on Facebook because they didn't give any, for their comments for the Terminator. It's only now I've seen the slasher movies on which this was partially based that I truly appreciate why I found the Terminator so frightening. Maybe, I guess, I find slasher horror a little more palatable these days because I just loved re-watching this movie again. James Cameron described this as tech noir, calling the nightclub after it, and it feels so apt. This movie is so tightly paced, it feels so original, despite multiple sequels. And I think the crux is that these sequels have forgotten the terrifying principle of this first movie. Yes, it's about time travel in part, but it's mostly about that one final girl being chased and defeating the ultimate evil, just like Laurie Strode had to in Halloween. And just like Halloween, the sequels became more diluted. I don't include Terminator 2 in that summary because that is genuinely a masterpiece. Like Alien's tense sci-fi horror in 1979 became Alien's action sci-fi in 1986, Terminator 2 takes the premise of the Terminator and switches it up, becoming less slasher horror and more of an action movie. I never understood why they reprogrammed the T-800, but it makes sense when you know Cameron's original plan for this movie to have two Terminators. The Terminator was pinnacle in both the careers of James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger. For Schwarzenegger, it showed his leading man credentials, as well as his action credentials, and would lead to a career spanning the next 30 years and beyond. For Cameron, it proved he was a credible writer and director. He would go on to helm Aliens, The Abyss, True Lies, Titanic and Avatar, as well as Terminator 2, and become one of the highest grossing directors of all time. The differences in the portrayals of masculinity are apparent too, with the peak of physical perfection, landing perfectly, superhero landing, as Deadpool would say, brimming with the strong, silent masculinity, juxtaposed to Kyle Reese, landing in the fetal position, skinny, frantic, emotional and expressive. Kyle Reese doesn't actually save Sarah from the Terminator, but he does keep her alive long enough for her to become the mother of the future leader of the Resistance through him impregnating her, which is the weirdest grandfather paradox in cinema, sending your colleague back in time to father you. It's weird, but I digress. Sarah Connor stops the Terminator herself and she starts her own journey. And with 2029 just around the corner and AI reaching a point where even podcasts can be written and hosted by AI, I promise this one isn't. Smart speakers powering our homes. Literally, we only have seven years before all of this happens, guys, so let's get ready now. For his part, the Terminator is not a complex villain with his own agenda. Like his slasher colleagues Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers, cinema still loves him regardless of who or how he kills. There is no rhyme or reason to his path of destruction because unlike Skynet, which has become sentient, this machine has not. He is just lines of code with one ultimate goal. Kill Sarah Connor by any means necessary including killing multiple innocent bystanders, and stop the future, a future that is predestined. Or is it? And that's something we can get to 
when we get to Terminator 2 Judgment Day because there is no fate but what we make after all. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Terminator. And if you have enjoyed this podcast and you do want to get involved and you want your comments read out, then all you need to do is go to social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. On a Saturday, I put up thoughts posts. Basically, pop your comment in the post and I will read it out and I will credit you as well and you'll get your name read out in this episode. You can support this podcast without paying a single penny. You can tell your friends and family about this podcast. You could retweet or like posts on social media, as I said, at Verbal Diorama, or you can leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. Any of those things, if you can do them, that would be amazing. And it is all completely free. If you've liked this episode on The Terminator specifically, I would like to take a moment to recommend other movies slash episodes of this podcast that you might also enjoy as well. I'm going to bring up episode 107, which is Last Action Hero. Because this is basically Arnie taking the mickey out of movies like this. Movies that basically made him an action hero. And Last Action Hero was a flop when it came out. But it is a super fun movie. It's a great comedy. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is absolutely fantastic in that movie. And the other movie that I'm going to recommend if you've not seen it is Aliens, of course. It was episode 114 of this podcast. Aliens is one of my favourite movies ever. And I absolutely love that the Terminator basically led to Aliens. It made me love the Terminator more, even though I was scared of it. And now I've done this episode, I love the Terminator even more for the fact that it was so pivotal to getting Aliens made. And Aliens is completely different to Ridley Scott's Alien. Like the difference between the Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day, they are two very different movies but they are in the same franchise and they are still both fantastic movies. I wholeheartedly recommend Aliens. It's on Disney+. Plus. Please go and watch it. Give me feedback on my recommendations. Do you think I missed anything? Let me know. The next episode, literally nothing to do with the Terminator whatsoever. There's <laughs> literally segue from District 9 to the Terminator. We are veering off. We are literally getting on an aeroplane and we go into a completely different country to, coincidentally, airplane, which is what Americans call aeroplanes. Airplane. I've got to get used to saying airplane and not aeroplane. Airplane is one of the defining Zucker, Abraham Zucker comedies of all time. Surely Verbal Diorama can't be serious. Well, Verbal Diorama is serious and don't call me Shirley. Airplane is coming up next on the podcast-ish, but... There is another Nanorama episode coming soon too. It's a very special episode on one movie, but one movie that I feel like we need to talk about. And that movie is Promising Young Woman. And the main episode is going to be coming out on airplane shortly after that. Now, I've, list I've basically told you all the ways you can support this podcast for free. And please feel free to do that. But if you do want to contribute financially to this podcast, that would be amazing. I would be so grateful. If you go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and become a patron, you get things like early episodes, you get access to the schedule, you get freebies, and basically the knowledge that you are making this podcast better. You also get swears on episodes. Not all episodes have swears, but those that do, such as Team America World Police, which had a lot of swears, 
They are uncensored on the Patreon. On the main feed, episodes remain family-friendly and suitable for all ages. I always like to say a huge thank you to the patrons. I always like to list them and just say a huge thanks to them. To Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Jason, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, and amazingly, this week, two brand new patrons have joined. So, huge thank you to the first brand new patron of Verbal Diorama, to Kev. I met Kev for the first time. Fellow patron Scott and I went down to London a couple of weeks ago, and we met Kev. And Scott and Kev are actually good friends anyway, but I met Kev for the first time. We all went out for food. We all went and watched Speed at cinema, which was incredible, by the way, obviously. And we just had a great day. Kev is a wonderful guy. He's so knowledgeable about film. And, you know, we just immediately kind of struck up this rapport. And then a week later, he's like, I'm going to become a patron. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's cool. So huge thanks to Kev for becoming a patron. And then literally, as recording this yesterday, I got a notification to say you have another brand new patron. And it's Pete. And this literally also as most patrons do, came out of the blue entirely because Pete has been a regular commenter for the last few episodes. And I've basically said about how much I love his Twitter handle because it's P-E-E-E-E-T-E. And then I get a notification to say Pete has joined as a patron, but as one of the highest tier patrons. So I was completely blown away because I don't expect people to give me that sort of money. Like that's ludicrous. But Apparently, Pete is a completely sane and very nice man. So I just wanted to say, you know, huge thank you to both Kev and Pete for joining the Verbal Diorama patrons and for supporting this podcast because this podcast is basically my life and I love doing what I do. I love putting out episodes every week, but patrons really do help. I'm currently saving up to buy a new laptop and I very almost bought one on Amazon Prime Day. But unfortunately, I didn't quite have enough money to buy it. But with the help of generous patrons like Kev and Pete and everyone else, hopefully very soon, I'll be able to buy that new laptop. And thank you, patrons, for your courage through the dark years. I can't help you with what you must soon face, except to say that the future is not set. You must be stronger than you imagine you can be. You must survive or I will never exist. I do have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch, where you can buy merch if you want. But if you don't want, you could just contact me and say hi. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com, or you can pop over to my website, verbaldiorama.com, and fill out the contact form. And I write bits for film stories, so you can find those at filmstories.co.uk. You can also find copies of the magazine that I write for as well. And finally... I'll be back.
And that's true because I will be back next week. <laughs> Bye. Movie